Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once, it's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hello and welcome back to Unheard. I'm Freddie Sayers. Yanis Varoufakis, a regular, I'm pleased to say, on the Unheard channel, is an increasingly rare thing. He is a figurehead of the left who actually enjoys talking with people he disagrees with. His thinking is full of paradoxes. It is always thought-provoking and interesting. He's an economist, a one-time finance minister of Greece, and the author, most recently, of Techno-Feudalism, What Killed Capitalism. He's here in the Unheard studio to tell us what that means. Welcome, Yanis. Thank you, Freddy. It's very good to see you in analog form. So I mentioned paradoxes there in the introduction. One of them, I think, is that you are so much a man of the left, and yet you talk a lot about freedom. You have described as a libertarian in the past, I believe a Marxist libertarian. And one of the messages of this book seems to be that our freedoms are under attack, that we are less free than we used to be. Tell us about that. Well, to begin with, the way I understood the left growing up, especially in my family, which came from a very liberal left-wing tradition, the idea that the left can be anything other than liberal was alien to me. If you think about it, the first trade unionists, the left initially in the 19th century, was all about emancipation, freedom liberating people from the yoke of uh, drudgery and from poverty and from oppression and from the police. Uh, so, from the state. Um, Marx talked about the withering of the state. He was not a statist by any stretch of the imagination. Now, what Marxists did in his name later on is neither here nor there. It's like saying that Christ was responsible for the Spanish Inquisition. So, even, you know, take the, the suffragettes, the first wave of feminism. It was all about women's lib, liberation, liberty. It hasn't panned out that way now. Uh, so I stick to the original project, which is all about having a conversation about how people can be free of all sorts of authoritarianisms, whether it's the power of capital, the power of the boss, or the power of the state, for that matter. Now, regarding the book, yeah, we've got a new kind of authoritarianism coming in, aided by technology. Give us a kind of overview of, of what well, that means. You, you, uh, Freddie, I have this, the reason why I wrote this book was because I have this uh, sensation, this hunch, I've had it now for seven, eight years, that we are living through times that can be compared to the 1770s. 
And here a liberal will, uh, I think, warm to the theme because I'm not choosing the 1770s at random. 1776, Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations. That book, together with the theory of moral sentiments, that is the foundation for the Wealth of Nations, heralded the beginning of capitalism. The notion that feudalism was being appended, usurped, overthrown by a new force. The new force in Smith's term was the market. In uh, Marx's terms, it was capital. It, it's the same story. It is a story of the commodification of land and labor, which paved the way for the dark satanic mills of Burke, the factories, the shift of power away from those who owned land to those who owned machinery, capital, steam engines, steamships, electricity and telephone grids. And therefore, the shift from rent as the form in which wealth accumulation was taking place to profit. In 1776, when Smith in Glasgow was writing his epic book, The Wealth of Nations, if you looked around, you saw feudalism everywhere. You came here to London, you looked at feudal power in the House of Lords, in the House of Commons. Uh, wherever you looked around the world, it was feudalism. But Smith was right that something was happening under the surface, which was creating this great transformation in the words of Karl Polanyi. I feel that we are experiencing the same thing here now. It's not just capitalism transforming itself, changing its colors. This capitalism has always done. With, you know, Henry Ford, late after the, uh, the Second World War with the big conglomerates, with advertising, with uh, marketing, branding and all that. Now I fear, feel, even hope, that we have another great transformation. This time, we are moving from... Uh, uh, a world in which economic activity, social activity, culture is driven by profit to a world in which, again, we go back to a form of rent, but not rent that allows you access to the land, but rent that allows you access to the new digital land, which is the cloud, which has been privatized. There have been a new series of enclosures, like the enclosures that spawned commodification of the land back in the 18th century, now we have had the enclosures that privatized the internet, created big tech, fused with finance, private equity, and created the world, which some people like, you know, my friend Guy Standing referred to as rentier capitalism. Now, we could have called the world we live in, I could have called it rentier capitalism, but I think it would have been wrong. In the same, same way that it would have been a mistake in the 1770s to describe that great transformation into a new form of feudalism that you could have been described as industrial feudalism, it wouldn't be wrong, or capital-based feudalism. But by dropping the word feudalism, our minds concentrated on the enormity of the transformation of feudalism to something completely different, which we now understand as capitalism. Similarly, I wanted to signal that this is no longer capitalism because the two pillars of capitalism are gone. They are not in the epicenter. Markets, and profits. And this is what is surprising to me about your book, that it feels nostalgic for capitalism. It almost feels you are, it's an elegy 
for the passing of proper capitalism. And I think very similar arguments might be made by people who consider themselves on the right that true free markets are not in place, that there is too much monopoly, it's crony capitalism. You hear this a lot. And what you're saying is not that different. Do you, do you accept that? Yes. Two points. First, if you're truly a Marxist, like I consider myself to be, uh, but not like you know, in the tradition of the Marxists, but in the tradition of Karl Marx himself and Friedrich, Friedrich Engels, if you read the Communist Manifesto, the first three pages are a eulogy of capitalism. It's a, it's a, it could be um, a brochure for globalization. The way he describes the manner in which uh, the bourgeoisie, through the development of the means of production, technology, is battering down the Chinese walls of superstition. <laughs> what is that? This is not a negative take on capitalism, but paradox, which you used in your introduction, for me, is the essence of things. To be able to understand, uh, to be able to appreciate something, and at the same time, be fearful of it. To be capable of understanding the, the triumph that is in involved in it, because capitalism was a triumph of humanity, and at the same time, it was a catastrophe. The situation you describe now, this move to what you call techno-feudalism, does feel like a negative. It, it's hard to find much in your book that is praising or optimistic about that new dynamic. Is that fair? So, so tell us about that. Somehow, the combination of a neoliberal or globalist economy um, moving with computers and new technologies has created this kind of hard to identify overlord. Tell us who is it? What is it? And where should we direct our rage? <laughs> I don't think we should have rage. I think we should have a critical disposition, right? Rage is not Fair. a good guide to anything. Okay. <laughs> um, it's natural to feel rage. And I feel rage often when I see gross injustices and inequalities, but we need to temper that. Otherwise, we will not get anywhere. Uh, look, yes, techno-feudalism is worse than capitalism. So it's a negative sort of phase in human history. But at the same time, I'm perfectly capable of recognizing the human triumphs uh, that are part and parcel of techno-feudalism. Take artificial intelligence. Everybody's worried about artificial intelligence, even the people who actually design it. But it is a wonderful testimony to human creativity and to the human spirit. As we speak, there are AI programs that are designing antibiotics, that are killing superbugs that have escaped the capacity of the pharmaceutical companies and human researchers. Uh, so that's to be celebrated. At the same time, we should be very worried about AI for reasons which I don't need to explain. Everybody's already worried about it. But allow me to make, before answering your question fully, to go back to something you said earlier. There are lots of liberals, um, smart ones, who look at the socioeconomic system that we now have and lament that it is not a free market system and so on and that there is too much chronic capitalism and too many rentiers and uh, too much monopoly pow power and all that. Uh, my message to them is, first, that was always the case. <laughs> there was never such a thing as a free market capitalism. Uh, it was in the imagination of Adam Smith regarding the Baker 
the brewer uh, and the butcher um, from very early on, you know, the moment you have Thomas Edison controlling everything from the power station to the lamp <laughs> in your house, that's not a free market. Um, that's the first message. The second message is that this is worse than you think, techno-feudalism. This is not simply concentrated market power. This is the demise of the market. Now, I remember um, when I was much, much younger, uh, listening to Friedrich von Hayek give, deliver a lecture at the LSE. He was quite elderly then, but still very astute. He came there, he was a brilliant lecture. By the way, I always liked Hayek, even though I was uh, ideologically opposed to him, uh, because he made me think and challenged people like myself enormously and in the most creative way. So he comes in there and says, he starts his lecture by saying, you know, yesterday I went to a, into a shop and I left that shop with an item that I didn't know I wanted. And that was his introduction, his preface to the critique of socialist planning. He said, if I don't know what I want, how can a socialist planner know what I want? How can a human-made system know what I want? In other words, you cannot replace the market. The market is not simply a mechanism, as mainstream traditional Valkyrie academic economists say, the mechanism for finding the right price to equilibrate demand and supply. No, the market is more for a true libertarian like uh, Hayek. It is character building. It allows you through interaction with the market to discover your true self and to become truly free. Now, whether I agree... Existential in, oh, purpose. That, yeah. So, whether I agree with Hayek or not entirely is not a matter now. Because the market is gone. It's finished. It's kaput. Today, Alexa sits on your desk. You train it to train you, to train it, to train you, to train it, to know you really very well. So, when Amazon recommends a book for me, or anything, any, any item, a bicycle, you know, when Spotify recommends music to me, it's spot on. I want what it says I want. It knows me, right? And this is not a market. This is what Hayek deplored. A human construction that replaces the market. That is an algorithm that belongs to Jeff Bezos. That knows me, knows what I want. And, Freddie, what is absolutely mind-boggling is that not only does it have the capacity to impress upon me what I should buy and to be right, and also help shape my preferences after a while in my interaction with Alexa. It shapes me, I shape its view of me, and it shapes me. But it actually sells me the stuff directly, bypassing every market. Because an Amazon.com is a trading platform, it's not a market. It's not a market that Adam Smith imagined. It is not a market that Hayek imagined. It bypasses the market. Now, Amazon does not produce the binoculars, the music, the, the book. Huh? What happens is that it is a conduit where some capitalist who produces the binoculars, the bicycle, the book, whatever, uh, through Amazon reaches me and Jeff Bezos charges that capitalist 40% of the price that I pay. That is a humongous rent. I call it cloud rent. So, a new form of capital has sprung out. It's not like steam engines. It's not like even very advanced industrial robots, which are produced means of production. You produce those things to produce other stuff. That's capital as we understand it traditionally. 
Alexa and all the paraphernalia involved, the optic fiber cables, the servers, and all that, which make up this, what I call cloud capital, is a produced means of behavior modification. The purpose of which is to allow the owner of cloud capital to extract gigantic rents from vassal capitalists. The capitalists are now vassals to the techno-feudal lords, the people who own cloud the capital. The Elon Musk's or equivalent. Yeah, um, and not just that, right? Because now we have cloud capital spread all over the world. It's in Kenya, it's in Nigeria, it's in Indonesia. China has a huge cloud capital fund base, you know, Alibaba, Tencent. Tencent is a company, is a big tech conglomerate, which is far more advanced than anything that Silicon Valley has. Anything Silicon Valley is far more advanced than the equivalent American uh, cloud capital. So if you marginalize in society profits and you replace them with cloud rents and markets and you replace them with these trading platforms, you don't have capitalism anymore. You have a capitalist class, you have a capitalist sector which produces the value, which, however, is siphoned off by the owners of cloud capital. So capital has spawned a mutation, cloud capital, which should worry left-wingers like me and liberals equally. I think the diagnosis a lot of people would agree with. In fact, I think you could say that that mood that you described, that sort of sense that there are these distant overlords and that we're all being manipulated all the time is very widespread and is the energy behind movements on both the left and the right today. But where people differ is what on earth we can do about it. Uh, you know, That's there, always there the are, disconnect, isn't it? You know, there, are, there are conservatives who want to just de unplug from the matrix, go back where, if possible, to the land, but that's impossible. remove themselves. Yeah, but that, you know, then... This reminds me of the hippies in the 1960s who thought that they could uh, escape uh, commercial society. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
let me throw a couple of ideas yeah. at you. A lot. I think it's fair to say that the techno feudalist blob monster, whatever however we describe it, is very global in nature, and that's one of its particular new features, as distinct from maybe earlier centuries. Capitalism globalized. Well, it's become more and more so in, over the over the preceding decades. A big always. Th- There's it was big... always globalizing from the day one. And Marx, in the Communist Manifesto, let me repeat that, describes globalization beautifully. And this he did in 1846. He was so writing. are you anti-globalist? I'm an internationalist. I don't believe in borders. Uh, I want free flow of people, of goods, uh, uh, of ideas. But... I'm anti-globalization because globalization is the opposite of internationalism. But this, I, I must say, this is Wait, one paradox. Let me, let me explain this. It's not, okay, not paradox on. at all. Okay. Go and stand at the U.S.-Mexican border. That's globalization. People cannot move. Yeah. They jump packed against the fence. Right? They're kept out like uh, vermin. Well, many of them are coming in. At this well, point. as vermin. <laughs> was squashed by the border police, right? By the border uh, force. Uh, goods are going in and out. Capital travels completely freely. Human beings are behind fences. That's not liberal. And that is not internationalism. That is globalization. Globalization is the internationalization and the free flow of money and of commodities that effectively result in uh, the depletion of uh, the industrial base in the United States, in Europe, Britain, and so on, uh, and uh, the complete freedom of capital to move around. Mm. Whereas it should be the other way around. So I think what I'd love you to do is explain to someone who is watching this and says, I agree with Yanis, there is this global monster of international capital combined with technology in a way that has become this hard to identify feudal overlord, which I don't like. I think a lot of people will be with you up to that point. To which a lot of people will respond, let's reduce the scale in which we operate. Let's try to reshore some of our industry. Let's try to bring things back to a more national scale. Let's care more about borders, not less about borders, to try to bring the world back to something comprehensible where our democratic levers actually have agency. And that's our only hope to push back against these forces that are otherwise so vast we can't understand them. Why are they wrong to have that I hope that my book explains why this is an illusion. Because if I'm right that power is shifting away from traditional industry, from traditional capital, terrestrial capital, to cloud capital, you can reshore the fading industrial terrestrial capital, but you cannot reshore cloud capital. Cloud capital lives in the proverbial cloud. It cannot be impeded by borders. Let me give you an example, right? Take uh, electric cars. Germany at the moment is going through a spasm of angst about deindustrialization. Now, I don't think that the German car industry is going to fade in terms of how many cars they produce they will continue producing in the next 10, 20 years the same number of cars as before. Their surpluses are going to shrink to almost non-existence because they no longer 
have the comparative advantage in fine engineering because the internal combustion engine they were very good at creating together with differentials and gearboxes and all that, right? Now the added value increasingly comes from the cloud. Let me put it this way. Um, the moving parts of an electric car are very low in terms of value added. The, the battery is what really matters. The battery technology has shifted to China. The Germans have uh, lost that battle because they never invested, stupidly. There's been no investment in Germany in new technologies in the last 13 years. Uh, they will keep producing cars. They will be importing to, uh, batteries. Maybe they will copycat BYD batteries and so on. But they will never be able to compete either be with BYD in China or with Tesla. Why? Because increasingly, the surpluses of Elon Musk, of Tesla, come from the cloud. Come from the fact that, you know, when you're driving Tesla around, right, Tesla knows where you've been, what music you've been listening to, what conversations you had, more or less, right? And it is this uh, cloud rent that um, Tesla and Elon Musk will be able to collect, and BYD. Why not Volkswagen? Because the Germans do not own cloud capital. None of the, those cloud-delist comp companies are German. They are not global. They are either Silicon Valley-based or west coast of, um, sorry, east coast of, uh, of China. Right? Um, to understand that, you need to understand how cloud capital is becoming the main game. So it's too, you know, it's, uh, the, the horses have bolted. Um, even if you return some of the productive capacity, I mean, I used to live in Austin and I watched the, um, the Apple factory being constructed just outside of Austin, the, the one where all the MacBook Pros mm -hmm. are being made now. Almost no workers in it. It's fully automated. You're not going to bring back jobs to the United States as a result of this kind of reshoring. Um, today, power stems from cloud capital. Cloud capital cannot be reshored. So when you say to me that my last chapter in which I describe another another now, another, you know, a techno-democracy as opposed to a techno-feudalism, uh, maybe it's not convincing. Uh, but it's, I believe, more convincing than those who say, let's go back to traditional free markets, traditional capitalism, or social democracy. Social democracy is finished. There's no way you can have a social democratic um, uh, you know, redistribution of power, of income. You know, what Harold Wilson used to do, what, what was Harold Wilson do, doing, or Willy Brandt in Germany, or Brand, Bruno Kreisky in Austria. He would sit, the captains of industry at the table, and also sit on the other side of the table, the representative of the DUC, of the trade unions, and negotiate nego the force them to negotiate and cut a deal, a social contract, whereby parts of the surplus of the industries would go to the workers and to the state to you know, fund the NHS, universities, schools, and so on. How can you sit down, Jeff Bezos, with all of us on the other side who are producing for free, you know, capital for him, cloud capital for him, through our engagement in Amazon.com with Alexa and so on? It's simply not possible. Okay, so there's, there's two parts that I, I really want to dig into before we let you go. So the first is this alternative now, because we have to sketch it out for people, otherwise everyone's going to be wondering what on earth you suggested. So it's a kind of ultra-democracy powered by technology, it seems to me, where 
Um, for example, within companies, as you put it, competing proposals are put to a vote where employee shareholders rank each proposal in order of preference via an electronic ballot form, sequential ballots, etc. There are tokens for bonuses that you you award to your colleagues, which seems like some kind of popularity contest. It's not a popularity contest. I think, to I me, think you're denigrating it there, there's unnecessarily. A, there's, a, there's a digital accounting unit called the Cosmos. To me, it actually reminded me of the Chinese system, where there's a kind of social credit, where everyone is going to be ranking and rating no, think, each other's performance I think, I think the whole time. I thought it seemed, what I'm saying. I thought it was terrifying. This, why, why am well, I wrong? I'm terrified by the Chinese system myself. I, I will let you into a secret which I don't mention in the book. <clears throat> the ideas that I have about how a conglomerate could be working, or a company, a corporation could be working, okay, uh, I didn't uh, conjure them up out of thin air. In 2011-12, I worked for about a year and a year and a bit for a company just outside Seattle that employed 350 people and had a turnover of 1.2 billion very profitable company, which operated along those lines. Every person who was hired had one vote. Horizontal, totally horizontal, flat management. No management at all. It was a video game company. You entered there um, and you could choose your partners, the project you'd work on. Uh, through the internet, you invited people using this idea, you know, who wants to work with me on that? Um, you participated in all the decisions. There was an implicit contract, an implicit deal, that um, you would only vote for things you don't know something about, you just wouldn't vote for everything, because you didn't have the time to. Uh, so, for instance, when uh, we wanted to, two or three of us wanted a graphic designer, with skills that we couldn't find in the company. We didn't ask for permission. So the three of us put out the job advertisement. Uh, we shortlisted people. And then we invited everybody else, whoever wanted to participate in, uh, you know, through the internet, watching the interviews, or even asking questions themselves. And at the end of the day, everybody had the right to vote whom we should hire. Everybody got a minimum wage, a basic income, which was a large amount, even, you know, the secretaries, you know, the janitors, everybody was getting the same. And then we would all together decide what chunk of our revenue, net revenue, would go to bonuses, which part would go to R&D, which part would go to this, to that and the other. Uh, and then how were the bonuses distributed? This was not a popularity contest. It was far more significant than that and much more interesting than that. So everybody got 100 brownie points and you could distribute them to other people depending on your assessment of their work and their contribution to the collective, to the firm, to the cooperative, because that's what it was, it was cooperative. And you had an incentive to give brownie points to the people you thought were truly adding value to the company because your bonuses in the future and your salary and the success of the, of the, of the corporation to which you were effectively a shareholder, an equal shareholder, depended, depended on keeping the people who were adding more value to the company. So it was not a popularity contest at all. And in the end, the, the, the bonus slice was divided in proportion to the distribution of brownie points that you got to from me, other people. To me, it is filled and it worked brilliantly. with the idealism, but which is worked. common 
on more common on the it's left. It's not idealism, you know. And this it, is the, a, the most a, profitable per capita firm in the United States as we speak. So I try in my books, I try to populate them with ideas that do not just come out of thin air. Uh, now, even if you think this is a, an extreme case, but this is an example of how you can... You see, I think... So no leaders. I think... Uh, we don't need leaders. Do you we remember, don't need do you borders. We don't need... The, the more kind of intuitive, historic, human structures that we've always had to are operate. Are we liberals or are we not? Do, we well, want, speak, do you, you really you, want borders? You tell me. I mean, once upon a time, there were no passports. The world was much a much better place. When, when Lord Byron went to Greece, where he died, or Lord Elgin for that matter, <laughs> he didn't need a passport. What was wrong with that? You had a document identifying yourself, and not even that. Um, I think borders are a sign of failure of the human species. So for, it's very relevant right now because the UK is currently having a, a, a lot of debate about immigration. You shouldn't be having this debate. It is a misanthropic, stupid debate. And you have a minister who should have been expelled from this country for having these ideas. She, I mean, she even challenged the, the, you know, the United Nations Charter on Refugees. I mean, this is, this is, this is... A, well, she su she suggested it might have been a an outdated, idiot. an outdated uh, legal mechanism to she resolve that dangerous problem. and dangerous poor excuse of human nature. But That's the people well, who of yours. the people who are anxious, very ashamed of her. But the people who are anxious about this issue are are the people you are trying to look after. Sure. There are people who my are, job is not well, is no, not to pander to anxieties that um, are absolutely false consciousness examples. Look. Freddie, we Europeans exported hordes, hordes of people. We emigrated to the four corners of the universe, of the universe, of the planet. Huh? We populated the earth from Latin America to North America to Asia to Africa, you know, millions, usually armed as well, right, <laughs> as imperialists. We had no qualms about that for a thousand years. All that has happened is that we're getting old. Demographically, we are aging. So, you know, migratory flows have reversed. We need migrants. The more, the merrier. Uh, the fact that our social democratic structures post-war are collapsing, they're collapsing independently of the migrants. They're collapsing for the reasons I'm, I'm trying to explain. Uh, the, the foundation is not here anymore to have a nation-state-based um, welfare state. Uh, we need other ways of redistributing income. The edifice of social democracy of the 1950s, 60s, and 70s is being dismantled in any case. People are not... They, why do people worry about the Romanians living next door to them? It's because the flats have been privatized. They used to be council houses, and now they are being privatized. And they end austerity, together with largesse for the finances through quantitative easing, has destroyed the foundation of the society, even if you didn't have a single foreigner. And, you know, all this angst and, uh, and, and rage, to use a word you used earlier, okay, is being diverted, as in the mid-war period, against the Jew, the Muslim, the Romanian, the Brit, the German, the foreigner. We must not tolerate that and we must never pander to that and say, oh, the solution is to erect taller fences. No, it is not. 
those people who you don't want to tolerate, I, I mean, I would prefer I mean the politicians. I would. I'm talking about voters. No, who, no, no, who no. Might have, I, who might have I tolerate every like. voter and okay. I respect every voter. Okay, but, but I engage in conversation with them. Whereas Miss Braverman is trying to poison the soul of everyone for her own very narrow interests of political survival of a government that is nasty, evil, and its life should be as, as short as possible. Uh, we don't need to talk more about Suella Braverman, <laughs> but the, the central thrust, which I'm struggling to get past here, is that the global nature of the techno-feudal overlords that you describe is so intrinsic to their power. The fact that they are invisible, far away, and this cloud capital is is untouchable and unidentifiable. A lot of people are anxious about the world, the scale of these structures having become too big. And, you know, the immigration question in a way is literally the human face of that overly large scale that people feel frightened about. And there's a big, there's an instinct to try and find ways to, to operate at smaller scale. Do you, do you... That's a complete illusion. The, I reject wholesale the notion that immigration is the human face of globalization is not. If Trump had his way and you built tall walls with zero immigration at all, globalization would be strengthened. Globalization does not need immigration, immigration, human movement at all, because the globalization of money, of cloud capital and of commerce. What would your final message be to readers who are interested in your ideas about what they can actually do in their day-to-day -day life to try to improve this situation? What, what, what one thing do you think we can actually try to do? Well, I'll fall back to an old traditional idea that um, a liberal should uh, appreciate. The idea that the only way of becoming um, a liberal individual, an autonomous person, is through dialogue and through uh, clashing of interesting ideas that oppose one, one another. Uh, at the beginning, you said that you, that you find it strange that I'm a left-winger who likes to discuss with people who have different views. Well, let me remind you that, you know, Marx began life as a Hegelian. And what was Hegel's great contribution to the idea of uh, social evolution? The idea that you have a thesis, you have its antithesis, the dialectic. They clash and they produce a synthesis. But that synthesis must be the result of our own rational, autonomous thinking, not that of an algorithm that is owned by Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos. So people should go out there and have conversations. Absolutely, you said we must never create safe spaces. Well, I enjoyed our <laughs> conversation today. Yanis Varoufakis, thank you so much. Well, thank you. Our thanks to Yanis for the conversation, to you for tuning in. Which bits you agreed with, which bits you strongly disagreed with, you can share with us in the comments. In the meantime, see you next time. This was Unheard. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health 
right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.